Wow, that was uh, amazing praise. Well done, guys. It's, um, yeah, that was... Well, we are continuing our series on the life of King David, a man after God's own heart, own heart, and this is part 23, believe it or not. It might actually be worthwhile, I was just thinking, of maybe collating all the, all the messages together and, and maybe even putting it all in, in, a, in a book format. And uh, you could use it as part of your devotion so we can continue the blessing from God's word in this regard. This morning we look, we're looking at the theme is costly sacrifice from 2 Samuel chapter 24 verses 17 to 24. So we are approaching the, the end of this, this long series. And in our last message, David, against his better advice, took a census of the nation. As a result, the Lord was, was angry with him and, and, and Israel, which, which meant that judgment was inevitable. And God gave David the unenviable choice between one of three options relating to the form in which punishment, judgment would take. And David chose to give himself over into God's hands because, and God sent a devastating plague which killed 70,000. You might call it a plague in the Old Testament. Today we know a plague as a pandemic. And some pandemics have been more devastating than others. Of course, we know that. But in all, in Israel at that time, the dead were already gone up to 70,000. The plague was, of course, justly deserved, not only because of David's sin, but because of the sin of the nation of Israel as well. In today's world, at least in the affluent West in which we live, there is a, a weird, prevalent conviction that somehow actions don't necessarily have to have consequences. That it is possible to, to find a way around anything. That someone, somewhere, could make it go away. It could be a good lawyer. It could be a good doctor. It could be a drug. But this is dangerous because allowing people to believe that consequences can somehow be avoided, that you can have your cake and eat it too, does not do anyone any favours. And this is not the way that God, who is the ultimate judge, put things together when he brought this world into order as Adam and Eve found out very quickly. Disobedience has a cost, has a price. Spiritually speaking, this is far more serious, of course, than coming before a judge protesting your innocence. Despite knowing deep inside that you are guilty, 
God knows us inside out. And because of sin, all of us are under condemnation. Now, I know this is very, a very unpopular uh, truth, even from the pulpits today. Nevertheless, the Bible says in Romans, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. It's Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is being revealed. And then, then the Apostle Paul goes and names the different ways in which the wrath of God is revealed. And one of the ways that Paul mentions in Romans 1 is he, he, God basically stands back and lets people do what they want to do. Okay, God turned them over. Fine, you want to go away and do that? Do it. But here are the consequences. Back to our passage. Verse 17, an inadequate offer. An inadequate offer. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. David knew it and you and I know it, that ultimately a cost has to be borne by someone. David took responsibility and did not try to shirk away from it. He knew too well that God will not simply prevent the consequences of actions from taking effect throughout the countryside. So the plague had taken hold of all of Israel, from the north down to Beersheba in the south. But you see, now this was coming right up to Jerusalem, right up to the capital of the empire. So David saw this, and David, the shepherd, the king shepherd, is willing to lay down his life for his sheep. These people are innocent. Please, I offer myself and my family. Please take our lives, but don't, don't let this continue. We know that his offer, sacrificial as it was, would be inadequate. The only thing that could save him and his people was God's mercy. We also know that his offer was a wonderful anticipation of his descendants. His name is Jesus known as the Good Shepherd, who will do just that. He will be the one who will lay down his life for the sheep. He is the one who who bore the ultimate cost for us. But this is a thousand years before that event happened. And just as the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Arauna, he was ordered to halt. 
and, and, and David's faith in God therefore was well founded. God had poured out his wrath on his people and now displays his mercy upon them. But the situation was not resolved at the end of verse 16. At that point, wrath was stayed but not satisfied. I hope you can see the difference. Wrath was stayed, suspended, but it was not satisfied. This occurs a few times in Scripture. The scourge still needed to be dealt with or propitiated. If not, worse will come. This is why there is a connection between the anticipated sacrifice and the restraining of the plague. In verses 18 to 20, the need for sacrifice. The need for sacrifice. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arawuna, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. And when Arauna looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king on his face to the ground. And Arauna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? So the prophet Gad, who we met before, came to David and told him what he needed to do and where to do it. There was a very specific place where the sacrifice had to be offered. He had to build an altar to the Lord right there on Arauna's property. The very place where the angel of the Lord had halted. It was a strategic place. A prime piece of real estate. Threshing floors were uh, usually on a height in order... If it's in a high place, it could catch the wind from every direction. A threshing floor is, is where you separate the chaff from the grain when you, and you have the animals marching on top of them, so you separate them and then the wind picks up and, and blows away the chaff and leaves the grain behind. So Arauna and his four sons, they are, they are threshing the wheat, separating the grain from the chaff and and, and 1 Chronicles, the same passage in 1 Chronicles, tells us that he looked up and saw not only David and his men marching toward him where he was, but 1 Chronicles tells us that he actually, Arauna, saw the angel of the Lord as well. What would you be more terrified of? These soldiers marching towards your house or... Would you be terrified of the angel of the Lord that just slain 70,000 throughout the countryside? Just think of the fear around us at the moment, not just in Australia but around the world. You and I perhaps can't see an angel of the Lord striking people down. But a COVID pandemic and the news headlines is enough to drive fear into anyone. 
So we can understand this, this fellow, Arawuna, and his boys. Humbly and terrified, he asked the king uh, the reason for the unexpected visit. So in verses 21 to 23, there's an offer too good to refuse. After Arawuna asked, why has the my Lord come to visit my servant? David answers, to buy your threshing floor, David answers, so that I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped. Arauna said to, to David, let my Lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for their burnt offering and here are the threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Arauna, gives all of this to the king. And Arauna also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. That we're all aware, this was no secret. They, everybody knew what was happening. The gravity of the situation was all too real. People were dying everywhere. They knew that something had to be done, which is interesting to which is quite a contrast to our own situation, isn't it? That uh, where even a deadly pandemic is not driving the majority of the people back to God. Pandemic seems to be driving people to the doctors and to get jabs and to get the shots and wear masks and all of that. I'm not saying any of that is wrong. But... Shouldn't this be driving people back to God, back to church, back to worship, back to a surrender to the one who controls everything? David must have this specific block of land so he can build an altar to the Lord. And this was the last outpost of the Jebusites. We, we, we encountered the Jebusites earlier on when David first conquered the strategic place that is now Jerusalem. And at that time, even though these Jebusites mocked David with Joab, you know, they conquered the, the city with not much, um, not much trouble. And yet, somehow, this fellow was allowed to live and keep his title for all of this time. Mind you, even now, David could still take it by force, you know, if he wanted to. He could do that. But instead, David told him to name his price. Like I said before, it would be difficult to underestimate the value of, of this piece of real estate. It was position, position, position. Overlooking Jerusalem, beautiful views everywhere. Uh, a developer would already be naming it Jerusalem Heights. But David had other pressing concerns on his mind. And Arauna proceeds to, to make David a deal he could not refuse. He offered to give David not only the land, but also the oxen, the, the wood, 
so that he could offer a sacrifice to the Lord. All of this for the price of zip, zero, nada, a brass razu. It would have been a very tempting offer for me. Wow, what a beautiful house I could put on here, right? Yet David refused. Why did David refuse? Oh, how easy it would have been for him to, to accept this generosity from Araunah. After all, he was only there because of, of the grace and the tolerance of, of the people of Israel who allowed him to live there for all of this time in the first place. They just could have chopped his head off and, and take it over, right? But the point is this. Had the noble offer been accepted, it would have been Araunah's sacrifice and not David's. That's very important. Can you see the point here? I, um, I remember when as a child I grew up in church uh, and I would sit on the pew just like some of you are here this morning. And uh, I would sit next to my, my late aunt. I had a few of them. But I, sat, I remember sitting with her and she would reach into her purse and pull out some money just before the offering plate is coming around and she would put some money in my hand so that I could give an offering. Now, I know what she was trying to teach me. She was trying to teach me how to, how to give, how to tithe, how to give an offering. That's good. Except that, except that I hadn't earned any money. I didn't do any chores. I didn't cut the grass. I didn't do the dishes. I didn't cook. I didn't do, clean the house. I didn't do any of those things in order to earn that money that she was giving me. Ultimately, it was her sacrifice, it was her offering, it was her tithe, not mine, right? Have we ever done that to God? Have we ever done that to God? Think about it. There is a need to bear the cost, verses 24 to 25. But the king replied to Arauna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings, sacrifices which have cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. And David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. So David recognized that if he accepted this offer, uh, the, the sacrifice would, would cost him nothing. Nothing at all. 
how can you offer a sacrifice without making any sacrifices to do so? Can you get the point? Sacrifices by their very nature have to hurt, have to cost something. It has to. In 1 Chronicles we read that, well, God accepted David's sacrifice by consuming it with fire from heaven. He accepted the sacrifice because David made the sacrifice and paid for it rather than just move one gift to another gift without paying the price. Moments earlier, you see, he was willing to give his life and the life of his family in order for the plague to be stopped. So paying money, even though it could have been quite a lot of money, it was still a bargain. It was cheap. It was compared to his life and that of his family. It, was, it wasn't really all that much. And David understood that the death of 70,000 Israelites in the plague would not be enough, even though all those people died, it was still not enough to atone for his and Israel's sin. The atonement could only be made through an approved substitute. It was the blood of the oxen. That was what God required. And in this case, the oxen were the substitute. They were the ones who would bear the cost. But of course we know that they were only a temporary measure, of course, until eventually someone greater would bear the ultimate cost for sin on a cross for you and me. Because... As Hebrews tells us, not even the blood of oxen, the sacrifices day in, day out were enough to eventually satisfy the wrath of God. It was only his perfect son who could do it. It was stayed, but not fulfilled. So picture the angel of the Lord standing there with lifted arms, ready to strike the capital, ready to strike the city of Jerusalem with his sword. Just at that point, right? And I think back to the time when Abraham stood there with a knife in his hand, ready to plunge it into his only son, Isaac. Did you know that that episode from Genesis happened at the very same spot, Mount Moriah? And both times, both times, God stayed the hand of the angel, of of Abraham, from taking life, any further life. Because, you see, he had a better sacrifice where his hand would not be stayed on the one who would take away the sin of the world. 
But the significance does not stop there. Abraham offered his son Isaac and then the ram was offered on Mount Moriah. David offered the sacrifice on Arauna's property, which is also Mount Moriah. And guess what else would be done there? The temple of Jerusalem, the temple of the Lord, will be built right there on Mount Moriah, on the same location today. This is what we read in 1 Chronicles. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. And it was on the threshing floor of Arawuna, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. David wanted to transform this place where chaff was separated from wheat into a place of sacrifice and worship. And it would remain a place of sacrifice and worship because this land purchased by David legitimately would be the site for Solomon's temple. Yes, it was there that sacrifices would be offered. And yes, this would be the place that for hundreds of years and thousands of years people would come and worship. But best of all, it was on a hill, not far away from there, not far away from there, called Mount Calvary, where the hand of God came upon his beloved son. And because of this sacrifice, men never need suffer the eternal wrath of God for their sins. It was because of his sacrificial death on a cross and his resurrection from the dead that the offer of eternal life has come to us. My friends, you reject this offer. It is grace, but it is not cheap. A sacrifice has been made. You reject this offer and you are on your own. I can guarantee you that. Well, for those of us who are believers, and I trust that most of us here this morning would be, what are today's sacrifices? Do we still have to do them? Yes, the sacrificial system has been abolished when Jesus died on the, and, and rose again. Uh, God does not require sacrifice for sin today. Nevertheless, he does require us to offer other types of sacrifices. No, they do not gain salvation for us, as that is only through faith in Christ. But there is a cost to following Christ as his disciples. Let me give you at least five from the scriptures. First one is giving. Philippians chapter 4 verse 18. This is Apostle Paul writing to the church at Philippi, thanking them for their gift to him. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. They are, what does it say? A fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. Right? That's the connection, that word sacrifice. 
Another one. What's another sacrifice that we can make today? Praising and proclaiming the name of God. Hebrews 13, 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Think about it. They were under Roman rule at the time. Openly professing Jesus' name would cost many of them their lives. If you openly profess the name of Jesus in your school, in the university, in your workplace, in your community, it's probably going to cost you something. It is a sacrifice, right? And the people around you might not appreciate it, but guess who does appreciate it? It says here, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. It is a sacrifice of praise to God. What's another sacrifice? Helping others. Hebrews thirteen sixteen, And do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices God is pleased. What we do, we don't do it so that people can say, come and say thank you, even though it's appreciated. We do it for him, ultimately. That is a sacrifice to God. What's another sacrifice? Being willing to lose our lives for the gospel. For many, many people in the world, this is a reality. This is what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.6. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, a sacrifice, and the time for my departure is near. He was about to die for the gospel right there. He knew it. And then I, th- I suppose this, this verse is, uh, brings it all together. Dedicating our whole being to the Lord. That is a sacrifice. This is what Paul told the Romans in 12.1. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Your whole being. As you can imagine, as we have been saying, in Old Testament times, a living sacrifice, something had to die. It was a dead sacrifice, so a living sacrifice was a contradiction of terms. You couldn't have a living sacrifice because he would soon be dead. The whole point of the sacrifice was it had to be killed. But our act of worship is no longer to bring a sacrifice, but to be one ourselves. We remain living. Thank God for that. It is all of us that is being offered at the altar. Worship is about what I say, what I watch, what I think, how I serve and where I go with my feet. As Eugene Peterson translates in the the message translation, he says this, Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating, your going to work and the walking around life and place it before God 
as an offering. That is his translation of Romans 1, or I think gets it pretty well. So we started the chapter, chapter 24, the last chapter in 2 Samuel, with David wanting to count the number of people in his kingdom. But he didn't realise how much it would eventually cost him and the people to do so. He soon realised there was a cost to counting and many paid the ultimate price for doing so. And there is a sacrifice that God demanded from his son that we might be washed from our sins. There is also a great commitment and a great dedication that God demands of us. It's called counting the cost of following him. If you want to be Christ's disciple, you need to count the cost. And what is the cost? The cost is carrying the cross. And if we cannot carry the cross, we are not worthy to follow Jesus. Someone wrote this piece. They said this, I counted dollars, but God counted crosses. I counted gains, while he counted losses. I counted my wealth by the things gained in store, but he valued me by the scars that I bore. I counted the honours and sought for ease. He wept while he counted the hours on my knees. And I never knew until one day by a grave how vain are those things we spend a lifetime to save. Those who are following Jesus simply for what they can get out of the relationship, they're not going to stick around when the going gets tough. Because you see, when God's way conflicts with our own, we feel betrayed by the, this shallow faith that we might have, this me-first faith that is so prevalent today. If, if we have not counted the cost of being his child, we will turn away at the threat of sacrifice and then we will soon find something else to gratify our desires. If we are going to be disciples of Christ, we must first count the costly sacrifice of following him. But whatever the cost, it is still a bargain compared to what we receive because of what he did for us. And it's called grace. It is all grace. May God bless us as we live for him. Amen.